Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. Well, here's to us and those that wish they were us. <laughs> Hi, Hi, did you miss me? I missed you. I popped on late. Did you notice? I did that on purpose to make that. you worry. I wanted you to worry. I wanted you to think, is Michael not coming today? No, I knew you were there. Okay. I, I, could, I could feel your aura. You could, the presence of me. I have my Sally Jesse Raphael glasses on today because you know we're going to get digging deep into the good stuff. We've got. Oh, I thought you were Sally Jesse Raphael today. Yes, I am. I'm channeling her. (laughs) She's not dead. Go ahead. I know, but still bringing her here. Listen, I want to propose a toast. Um, I come, as many people do, uh, from a long line of glamorous women who, in the golden age of cocktails, had traditions and they developed their signature drink and their their signature toasts. And I had one grandmother, my paternal grandmother, who when we went out to a, a luncheon and she would have her standard cocktail, which was a Canadian club and water. Um, and she would order that. And then instead of ordering a second drink, she would merely say, you may compliment the bartender. And that was her sort of signature secret way of ordering a second drink. Mm, You're so wealthy. My other grandmother, when she wanted to order, uh, uh, she would say, well, you can't fly on one wing. I'll have another. (laughs) So these are wonderful traditions that grew of a time when public houses, bars, restaurants, and clubs would have their signature drinks for their patrons and mm. everyone had their call. You would call a certain beverage that you liked. If you had a certain whiskey, oh, I'll have the Johnny Walker or I'll have the Glenlivet or I'll have mm. In Texas, and I mm. didn't know this, there mm. were dry counties and mm. whiskey had such a really integral part of Texas culture And the reason we're talking about it is because we're going to take you to the newest, most fabulous Texas distillery making Mm. ordinary Texas whiskey. And we're going to look at a new Texas whiskey tradition that goes with barbecue and tomato salad. It's with a lot of different things. So I I love your story. Before you get there, let me tell you my story. When I'm in a bar and I'm on a date and the girl said, I have to go use the washroom. And then I say, well, give them my name. You'll get a better seat. Oh, oh, okay, go ahead. Funny. Well, 
Anyway, the long story short is we've reached out to our friends in the Texas culinary world, including mm -hmm. James Beard Award winner Linda West Eckhart, who wrote the only Texas cookbook. And I asked her for some tips about about pairing great Texas whiskeys and food because we're coming into grilling season. And the show today is all about grilling and outdoor cooking and the kinds of food that we're getting ready to enjoy in the month of June as we're mm -hmm. getting warmer weather. All of us are clearly itching to get outside, but we're not necessarily itching to go to restaurants. So how can we bring that classic steakhouse experience, that true Texas charm and hospitality, that wonderful Lone Star State Conviviality to Life. Well, we went right to the source. And we've got Rob Arnold mm -hmm. here. He's one of the founders and owners of TX Whiskey. They're a new whiskey that's being produced in Texas. He's calling in from the distillery in, um, in Fort Worth. There, you've got one too. And we're actually- I've got three. Uh, by the way, I've got three. I don't know why. They're because all different. They Three different um, expressions of this, and we're so gonna. Buddy, yes, we're sniff. You're gonna sniff. I'm gonna sniff and taste. Rob's gonna teach, and we're gonna do an authentic Texas whiskey tasting. And you may say, "Well, I know I like whiskeys from Kentucky. I know I like whiskeys from Scotland, Ireland. I even love whiskeys from Japan." What am I going to learn about Texas whiskeys that's going to make me love them in their own category? Well, Rob Arnold's the man who's going to teach us just that so that when we get our skirt steaks and bone-in T-bones ready for grilling over the next few weekends, we will have a perfect pairing. But wait, who's coming on to talk about that? Is that what Matt Moore is doing? Matt is calling in. In the second part of the show, we have one of the great New York Times celebrated chefs from New York, Matt Moore calling in to talk about grilling during quarantine. What do you oh. do when you don't even have a, a fire escape or an outdoor space big enough for a hibachi? There is mm -hmm. always mm -hmm. a way when there is a will, and that is why we're going to raise our glass to this quarantine grilling and food pairing show that we're doing today. It's all about these wonderful sort of ready-for-the-season kinds of it's, it's kind of a man show, but I'm thinking maybe you could sort of women yeah. around a little bit, huh? I mean, it's but it's right up my alley. I'm just okay. saying. Okay, I'm just saying. You know. I did, so, I, I, and just so you know, I grilled bone-in New York strips mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that have so incredibly much flavor. You know, yesterday we were joking about the fact that I look like my grandmother now. Yesterday, oh, I, I wasn't joking. I, I, wasn't, like I, I wasn't joking. Yeah, I know. I was eating a, a steak that would have made my grandmother say, Ooh, I like the little part. Can I have your bone? Can I have the bone? Because she would nibble and she'd love the part near the bone. But mm -hmm. I digress. Texas whiskey has a long and storied tradition. And in some of the dry counties, you had to wrap your whiskey in a brown paper bag and you would keep it by your leg of the table on the floor. It was not something that was prominently displayed on your table the way we can freely enjoy today. The whiskey tradition is long in Texas. It is proud and it is thriving in the new expressions brought to life by Rob Arnold and his team. Can we bring him on? He's kind of long-winded. Is that Not okay? Me. okay. <laughs> there he is. Hey, Rob. Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me. Hi, Rob. Hi, Hi Rob. Let's zoom in on Rob. There he is. Look at that, huh? 
That's a Texas boy. Just in case no one's ever seen a Texas boy, there well, you go. I'm, but I'm from Kentucky, so that's uh, I've been in Texas for about ten years, though. There you go, Jennifer. He's all to yours. Me, to me, that's the best of both worlds. There you go. Hey, Rob, let's talk a little bit about American whiskey traditions because when you endeavor in the whiskey business, you really do tie into a long history and tradition of brown spirit that has its roots in, one could argue, the spirit of this country. Yeah, I mean, for me specifically, um, I'm third generation in the industry. So my uncle, my grandfather, my great uncles, they were all in the bourbon industry in Kentucky. Um, even goes back to my great, great grandfather who was a brewmaster master from Germany and came over to, uh, to Indiana and brewed beer there for the majority of his life. But Oh, cool. The, what, um, what brand was that? I'm just curious. It's one that's, it's no longer around. Um, I don't, one thing I have that's cool, though, is a census record from 1900 that has his name on there, an occupation brewer. That's so cool. But it's, uh, I mean, look, the spirit, I mean, whiskey starts really with farmer distillers back at the very beginning of our country, right? I mean, the idea of a distillery as a standalone place, that's not the way it started. It was farmers who would distill surplus grain into whiskey. And from there, the industry grew and, and the style of bourbon and, and you know, native to the United States grew from um, our use of corn, which was a new grain to, uh, to these distillers that came from Ireland and Scotland and Europe. They were familiar with barley, right? And maybe working with, with rye and, and wheat, but not corn. They, they discovered corn when they came uh, to, uh, to the new world. And so it's, it's you know, the whiskey is is mixed into the history of farming um, from from really the very beginning, and uh, the industry grew obviously, but we're still very much connected to the farm, just the same way the wineries are part of the vineyard. You know, one of the things that's important for us all to remember is that the immigrant traditions of peoples coming from other parts of the world brought with them all of their spirits distilling experience, which is how we ended up with something other than just a moonshine culture. Not that yeah. there's, it's just a very different kind of product, but those refined, barrel-aged, wonderfully flavored, really elegant spirits that come from the parts of the world that really brought those uh, usquivas and, and whiskeys and, mm -hmm. and water of life to life that got brought here we think of it as traditionally American, but again, it has its roots in that wonderful immigrant experience. And it's just part of that liquid pastiche that has become this part of our culture. Talk a little bit about your family and where whiskey has brought you all and, and your whiskey story, your family whiskey yeah. story. Well, and before you, before, wait, Rob, before you do that, Jennifer, could you use normal words that everyone understands? I don't know what a pastiche is. There was like five words in that last rant that I had. Rob, am I, were you with me on this, or did you? Are you some? Are you? Did you I knew one or two of them, but not that one you just said. So I mean, what is a pastiche? I don't know. I mean, I feel like um, this, I'm the Count of Monte Cristo right now. I don't even know what to do with myself. I'm I feel, sorry. I am so sorry. I mean, I feel like John Volton John. I feel so fancy. I don't know what to do. I do way too many crossword puzzles. That's all I can say. Mea culpa. Oh my God! There she goes again. Did you do you do the New York Times? Do you do the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle? In are you familiar? Are you familiar with that? The New York no. Times. Are you, are you familiar with the New York Times? 
No, I get I get mine from the dollar store and I get them in large print. I mean, oh, I just didn't know. I'm sorry, Rob. Where were we? Let's go, Rob. Wait, Rob. Where where were we? Let's go back to you. Where were we? Talking about whiskey. Um, I'm sorry. Sometimes she gets carried away with herself. But yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. I grew up around the industry. Um, it wasn't something I was dead set on doing, though. It, it really was after I left Kentucky. I came to Texas to study uh, to study chemistry and, and medical research. And while I was in grad school, I started making beer at, at home. I started homebrewing. And then, um, you know, I might have made some whiskey at home, um, or maybe I didn't. Never, I'll never say for sure. But um, I just I realized there was this really cool ability to tap into the science that I was already studying the science that I'm passionate about with this artistic creative process that is whiskey making. You know, it's not science, it's not art, it's, it's a mingling of the two for sure. Um, and that's about the time I really started talking to my uncle and, and you know, family friends that were in the industry there for their careers. And just, I realized I had this wealth of resources and this family tied to this amazing spirit. And, you know, I realized there was just so many things lined up that I was going to to pivot away from medical research and, and become a whiskey distiller. Um, you know, so when I told my parents for the first time, given that they were familiar with the industry and my mom's dad and brothers had worked in it, they weren't totally shocked. Um, you know, there probably, probably wasn't the normal reaction when, a, a you know, someone would tell their parents they're going to drop out of grad school and make whiskey. Uh, it was a it was actually a pretty good reaction. But the one thing they were not on board with initially they are now was why are you going to make whiskey in texas why don't you come back to kentucky and make whiskey but uh you know i i recognized um along with the original proprietors and founders of of tx that there was something special about the state from the weather for maturation the ingredients the people here the the passion for whiskey you know i decided to stay in texas and make texas whiskey Versus go back to Kentucky and and, and make uh, Kentucky bourbon. Talk a little bit about the TX brand. There are three expressions in front of us today. You're going to teach yeah. us how to be a proper whiskey taster. For any kind of whiskey, these kinds of standard sampling and testing techniques are pretty common. So no matter what you're tasting, you could have an entire summer tasting different whiskeys from all over the world. But we're yeah. going to learn them in Texas with an expert. And I want you to start by telling us about the three expressions we have in front of us here. And, and explain to me why we have these fantastic yet different pops. It, it reminds me of, a, of another kind of, um, it's, it's, it's like a signature. It's like everyone's different. Yeah, so the three expressions we have right now are TX Blended Whiskey. This is our first release. And then um, TX Bourbon and TX Bourbon Barrel Proof. The Barrel Proof actually just came out. Um, really last month. But each one on the cap uses a piece of, of boot leather. Um, so reclaimed boot scraps from local boot makers around Fort Worth, um, around the state of Texas. And each one's a little bit different. And it could be anything from exotic, you know, snakes. I got a look at this one. Yeah, the different colors. Each one. Is I'd like to say mine came from a real rough cowboy. I can tell you that right here. <laughs> but, the, you know, when they make a pair of Western boots, there's we call them boot scraps. They're the leftover parts um, of the leather. 
And usually those can be used to make belts or wallets or, or they're thrown away. Um, we trade whiskey for those boot scraps and, and make all of our caps out of them. So each That's one awesome. really is handmade at the distillery. It's incredibly low throughput, um, but it's a thing that we'll never turn away from because it's, it's a true mark of our brand. Um, not vegan. Not vegan. So. <laughs> uh, no common. Yeah. Um, Rob, talk to me about the sniff that we're getting from the corks that we just are examining and, and how important aroma is in your particular expressions of whiskey. I mean, aroma and oh. whiskey especially is, is much more important than taste. So, the you know, if you have a glass, um, the first way to get that sense of the flavor is through sniffing. Um, yeah. That sniffing process will allow so many of the flavors that you're going to experience when you take a sip um, to be captured just through putting your nose into the glass. You can... Um, so I'm using a, a whiskey glass here called a Glencarn glass that comes from Scotland, but any type of glass will do. The one you have right there is great. A wide mouth at the top isn't isn't ideal for whiskey. So like a tumbler makes great for cocktail. Maybe not the best if you're going to do a tasting, um, but really anything works, whatever you have at home. Um, swirling is a bit of a point of contention, but... I think it's just fine to swirl, you know, to give it a little bit of swirl. You can watch the legs on the glass, just like with wine. That'll tell you maybe how viscous it is, what kind of mouthful you might expect, how strong the alcohol is. Um, and, and how do the legs tell you that? Because as you look at the liquid dripping down the side once it's washed over, what am I looking at and what am I looking for? What does that tell me? Really, you're looking at at the speed of those legs, how fast do they fall back down into the glass? Mm -hmm. um, it's not a mark of quality. It's not going to tell you if the whiskey's a good or a bad whiskey. But if, if you have legs that really hang up on the glass, don't fall down quick. Uh, you're probably, you're probably going to experience a very, you know, a nice mouthfeel, very viscous, uh, potentially high alcohol. But yeah. if it's, if those legs are good, if the viscosity is good, you know, the high alcohol content doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a hot whiskey. It can be a very, very savory, fun experience. So, And um, we're tasting the first whiskey is the TX, TX whiskey. whiskey. And this came out in 2012. Um, this was our first whiskey that we released. And uh, in 2013, it won Best American Craft Whiskey in, in San Francisco, the World Spirits Competition. Uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> definitely helped us uh, kind of get our name on the map to an extent, but I'll get your name on the map, young man. Don't yeah, you worry about it. Yeah, we need to. Come uh, on, bro. So you, so you take a nice sniff. What's then, really compelling about this for the audience that doesn't have a glass of this in front of them, although next week when we visit with the food piece of this and do our, we're going to do a spirited dinner or a food and, and whiskey pairing. Mm -hmm. um, just in time for Father's Day. But what I really loved about this were the notes of vanilla and yeah. caramel and almost a soft tropical fruit in the finish of the nose. It really is sniffing into the, you know, super luscious um, vanilla caramel category. And it almost tiptoes into the nose of a rum. That's how remarkable. Yeah. Jennifer, when you say the finish, you don't mean from Finland. 
right? No. <laughs> okay. I like the fact that Rob is an overachiever. We haven't even discussed this yet, Jen. The yes, shots I, of knowledge. Okay. That's his book. <laughs> that's his book. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Where else? Book Sign a million. Of whiskey. Yeah, that's uh, I worked on that with a professor from TCU, chemistry professor uh, Eric Simonic, and it came out a few years ago. It's a fun project. If you like Super science, nice. if you like science and you like whiskey, uh, it's a good book. Um, Super nice of you to include him. I would leave everybody out. <laughs> Actually, on my book that's coming out July first, I don't I don't tell you who I work on it with because I take all the credit. You know what I'm saying, Rob? Cool. I take all the credit. Thank you. I like it. Um, <laughs> but who yeah, is Firestone and Robertson? Rob, Who's Firestone Rob, and Robertson? Go ahead. Yeah, so we're the it's the Firestone and Robertson Distillery, and those two original proprietors uh, were Leonard Firestone and Troy Robertson. Um, I was the first employee of TX. They kind of I, I was still in grad school when I met Troy and Leonard, um, contemplating leaving to to go into the industry. And so we we kind of hooked up to the grapevine before the company had announced who they were. Um, but had a few meetings. We just talked, drank whiskey. We had a lot of the same ideas for what a Texas whiskey could be, and especially one from Fort Worth. And uh, so that's you know they basically took me out of grad school before I finished to uh, <laughs> to become creepy. a distiller. But what um, and where are they now? Where are these two men right now? Where's so, Troy and Lenny? So they're they're still involved as uh, as our brand ambassadors. Um, we about uh, not quite a year now, the company was, uh, we merged, partnered with Pernod Ricard, um, who is a, a, a large wine and spirits company. Uh, I've never heard of, I've never heard of Pernod Ricard. Are they, <laughs> are they a large company? No, we're running yeah. out of time. <laughs> time away from my whiskey. Yeah. Drink your whiskey. We're chat, chit, 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 chat with Michael. Yeah. It's but, chit chat uh, with Michael. Chit chat with Michael while you talk about vanilla and fish. Uh, fish vanilla. It's been, I mean, just for what it's worth, it's been awesome. I mean, uh, some of these distillers that I have known somewhat at massive places, well established places, Jameson, yeah. Hiram Walker, you know, now they're a phone call away. So it's it's been pretty good. Um, some of the other but, things in the portfolio include things like the Martel Blue label, if I'm not mistaken, that yeah. we absolutely adore. So this is about the best of the best. And to get somebody like that saying, this is the best in this category means we've got to pay a lot of attention. We've got a shorter amount of time. And I apologize for that. But let's take our first sips. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about how the relationship between aroma and taste exists in a whiskey. I'll let you um, be my, you know, whiskey doctor and tell me how that mm. works. Lead her down the road. Close your eyes, Jennifer. Grab her by the hand, doctor. Take her. Take her to the whiskey room. Take your sip, but let it, you know, leave it in the mouth for a little bit. Move it around. Don't just take a sip and, and down it. Look, look at the face. I almost want to just, can I just get the face on Jennifer? Can we just get that face? <laughs> Let's just go. Ah. Can you do that? Do the face again. No. Control room. All right, fine. Oh, we lost her. Now she's gone. All right, there she goes. Rob, what's, what's really compelling about this uh, is that all those notes that we sniff and smell and first appreciate give way to a chord of flavor in the whiskey itself that is both uh, textural in its viscosity and yeah. in terms of the heat, which everyone expects from an alcoholic beverage, 
is usually a marker of how well modulated and, and, and controlled it becomes in the process. Talk a little bit about your house style of TX whiskey and how you control those elements. TX, you mentioned it earlier. I mean, the the punch that you get of that vanilla and that caramel off the nose, and then again, we take a sip. That is definitely the flagship house style for TX whiskey. Not for our bourbon so much, but for our TX whiskey. Yeah. And um, those, you know, there's such approachable flavors and and they do mix really well in a variety of cocktails, really any, it's, it's hard to find a, a cocktail TX whiskey won't work well in. But um, the the process that we, we use to create this is blending, right? So this is a blended whiskey. And just like with blended wine, that, that basically just means there's different styles of whiskeys that are blended together to create the end product. And through blending different styles of whiskeys together, you can accentuate flavors that you want and then quiet down ones that you don't want. And so we can really accentuate the flavors of vanilla and caramel uh, through the blending process. So is that called a master whiskey blender? What would you call that job? Yeah, so we, so I'm, my title is master distiller. And, and then we also have a head blender, um, Ali Achoa, who is in, in charge of deciding how to blend mingle barrels for a batch, right? Now, can and, you do it per bottle or it's gotta be a whole big blended batch? Uh, it's, it's per batch, yeah, so like. I mean, it is, but, cause I was actually asked the other day to open a, a, a whiskey place in Vegas on the strip mm -hmm. and we would do our own blending right there and have like a blender that people would come in and buy the bot. They would buy a full, we blend it for them. That's and cool. I was thinking, isn't that a cool idea, right? I was like, but I, you know, is it a moneymaker? And I, I, it has to be a moneymaker for me. You know yeah. what I'm saying, Jen? That's all. Well, and, and I'm thinking, what if the most miraculous combination is struck upon? But, you know, you don't have to wonder because we've got three great expressions. We're running out of time. And I have to tell you. Why do you keep saying we're running out of time? Matt Moore can come on. He looks like a whiskey drinker to me. Yeah, Should but we bring I, him on? Well, in a minute. I just want to do two things first. Don't be I'm afraid gonna, of him. I, I no. You're gonna love. You're gonna love all the guests we got booked today. You're gonna love today's show. So, uh, Rob, I want to talk about two things. We did a lot of sampling of food pairings, and in this pandemic period, yeah, people are drinking a, a more, and and sales are up, but people want to drink better. And one of the things I want to compliment you on is you have delivered both a sipping whiskey and a pairing whiskey, a whiskey that pairs really well with food and not just on its own. One of the things people do right now is they do lower alcohol by volume. And I'm going to get to the, the heart of the potato here. When you make a tall drink like a highball, <laughs> When you make a highball, like a whiskey and soda or a whiskey and water, and that becomes your quencher as you're eating food, you right. want to really irresistibly quenching and satisfying and companionable, pairable with food. The blended whiskey with all those notes is really very friendly at the end of the meal, especially. We yeah. did a series of desserts, including Bananas Foster. We did a strawberry. Um, compote 
we did some crunches, cr pies and crumbles. And what we found was that, that whiskey soda at the end of the meal was really satisfying. And that, yeah. that blended whiskey worked brilliantly well with those dishes, but it was the bourbon in its tall highball expressions, making a low, that was very entree companionable. And I want to get to it. Yeah. And I want to get to the yeah. fact that things like ribs with a great, you know, sweet yeah. sauce. And we did, uh, you know, bone and steaks and we did great tomato and watermelon salads. And again, that tall sipper that we created with the bourbon, the TX bourbon was really sensational. And that's what makes it really ultra grilling friendly for this time of year. Yeah, it really is. I mean, so, so TX bourbon, this was our second uh, whiskey that came out in 2016. It's, um, it brings, and for bourbon, I think pretty unique flavors of strong sweet spice, cinnamon. Um, it's it's got nice dark fruit flavors, um, fig, raisin, and and the just the flavors when you mix them with and barbecue is obviously huge down here in Texas, um, and it does really pair well nicely with with barbecue, um, with with grilling, with and. You know, I think you nailed it with the, the highball is a great way to enjoy your, you know, any whiskey, bourbon whiskey, blended whiskey, whatever, with a meal. I mean, I, I love whiskey, obviously, but, um, you know, I usually won't go reach for a neat whiskey when I'm having a meal. That's something I have after. But but a highball, you know, so we love like Topo Chico down here in Texas, Topo Chico and bourbon, Topo Chico and the blend. Um, you know, it works really good. It's right here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we before we bring Matt in, let's just bring in a sniff of the um, of the bourbon, and um, and talk a little bit about how notably different this is. Yeah. Smelling the blended whiskey was like smelling a perfume. Smelling the bourbon whiskey, the TX bourbon, is like sniffing a great cologne. It has so much more masculinity yeah. to it. It's a. It's just. I mean, I can say this as a lady who's been very fortunate. Uh, this is like dancing in a, in a proper uh, ballroom style with a gentleman who wears just the right amount of the best cologne ever. You don't want the dance to end. It just smells yeah. amazing. Yeah. And that's what happened to me, Jennifer, with my colognes. You know, I, my wife has been buying me very fancy colognes. And it's true. Called Creed. Very, very high end, very expensive. That is, that, that is very high end. It's the oldest cologne in the world. I don't even know if they have it in Texas, so don't worry about that, Rob. Of course they do. It's but, where Neiman Marcus, God rest his soul. Oh, know. right. That's Prince, true. Harry, Prince Harry wears the creed. Oh, he yeah. does? But that if you were smart, wear the bourbon, just a little here. Do you wear the bourbon behind your ear, Rob? Yeah, sure. We're great. We, uh, we, we, we had candles made out of the aroma of the bourbon and the blend, actually. What? We got to get those. Let's ask for our care. I, you know, I got to get a care package banner made because we need. Care. But I mean, the so the bourbon compared to Kentucky bourbon, it is distinct. I mean, part of that, a big part of that, is where you know the environment down here, the weather. So, I mean, it gets hot in Kentucky too, but it gets very hot here, and it doesn't get that cold in the winter, especially compared to what Kentucky gets. Well, it's more humid there too, Rob. It's more. And have you dated Kentucky women before? Have you dated Kentucky girls and then dated Texan girls? Have you? Have you I'm just wondering. Yeah, well, my wife's a Texas girl, so. Um, but I was once with a Kentucky girl. Yeah. You, you were? Adorable. And 
<laughs> yes, she was. Knew how to cook. I'll tell you that. Hi, Jen. But uh, We're going to bring Chef Matt Moore on, who was recently featured in the New York Times. He's going to be grilling with us today. And the reason, Rob, we're doing that is because this whole bundle of yummy, delicious, remarkable. Oh, there he is. Look at that. Is that an egg? Oh, I uh, love it's it. a, cast, a cast iron egg. Yeah. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. Hey, Matt. Hey, how are you guys? You've got tips for getting us through. Are you a whiskey drinker? Is it okay that we're bringing you on a little bit into this conversation and overlapping? Yeah, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, so I think it runs in our blood. And uh, Rob, please don't hold it against me. During this quarantine, my wife told me that I've been drinking too much whiskey. So um, she actually set me up with um, kind of a watered-down white claw out here to uh, to have a little happy hour. So I'll have to break into the whiskey, so don't, don't – uh, don't think less of me uh, as a Tennessean. I know that we don't have quite the same things that they had in Kentucky and and certainly in Texas. We all know that Texas is the only state in the entire union. So uh, oh, I appreciate it. I'm a Tennessee ball, so I've got nothing against Tennessee. All right, cool. Yeah. Jennifer, why didn't you tell me we have a boy from Nashville coming on? I would have had my country star friends pop in. Because we'd run out of time, and we have a lot to talk to them about. Matt, do you know? Do you know the great the great Arlie Bragg? Are you familiar with Arlie Bragg, the great barbecue I am, guy? Yeah, he's a good friend. I love Arlie Bragg. He uh, he runs what is he run? Kansas City Barbecue, the Cape. He runs that whole thing, and he does yeah, all Nashville that. Really, um, believe it or not, you know, we're still a small town uh, for the for the right people, and uh, it's it's been a great place. I've been here for fifteen years. So it's kind of home away from home. I grew up outside of Atlanta, Georgia, and went to school at Athens, Georgia. Sorry, Rob, I'm a Georgia guy. So uh, <laughs> whole balls and Tennessee thing. Yeah, a little bit I of a, balls, a little I guess. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I, but it's uh, Athens is probably my favorite here. in the SEC. So, are you um, are you in Nashville proper, or are you out sort of by Franklin and Leapers Fork and that stuff? No, I don't go out to the burb, and I'm in uh, East Nashville. So, uh, in fact, what you're looking at was completely destroyed uh, two months ago from the tornado that hit us on March 2nd. So That's why the um, fence looks so new. Well, it's uh, AstroTurf, actually. So uh, I have two young girls <laughs> and the fence. <laughs> yeah, the fence, I'm sorry. Um, but, yeah, it was, um, you know, it, we live about a mile from downtown, and East Nashville is sort of like the Brooklyn of town or the Silver Lake of L.A., and uh, just a really great artist community of people. And as we were rebuilding um, this particular part, if you were to go literally 25 yards this way, it's a complete war zone. Um, you know, homes were completely wiped out. Uh, the 750 pound uh, cast iron grill behind me actually survived in the backyard, but everything else was, was taken out. So uh, wow. yeah, it's been a certainly an interesting season for us here. Well, we're going to have to introduce Matt to my one of my best friends. Actually, he lives in Nashville, right right around you somewhere. And his birthday happens to be today. And his name is Phil Vassar. Do you know Phil Vassar? Oh, I, okay. So Phil and I, um, 15 years ago, I, I used to play music. And I probably opened I don't know, 15 or 20 shows for Phil. Oh, uh, wow. Southeast runs. Yeah, so my, my buddy, who's a, an agent at William Morris Agency, Henry Glasscock, used to be an independent pr promoter. And uh, did a lot of shows with Phil. He's fantastic, man. He's yeah. seriously like, I don't think there's songwriters like him anymore, honestly. Oh, no way. No. And he's 104 <laughs> years old today. That's the best part about him. <laughs> Jennifer. Stand on the piano, man. He's awesome. I'm going to raise Jennifer, my glass. You would love Phil, Jennifer. He's all buff. 
He's yeah. buffing, banging on that piano. Like a he's like doing push ups on the piano, man. Right, he's exactly. Awesome. He's great. And in fact, Rob, we drank a ton of bourbon together one night in Tuscaloosa. I forget the club that we played, but he's a good guy, man. I, I love his music. So I'll connect you guys back up because I know he's a, he's loves he loves that you know yeah that'd be that, fun that kind of camaraderie that conviviality Jennifer <laughs> all right now yeah. do the interview with Matt I've got that done I'm not he doesn't want to go out to the suburbs I'm done that's my only in town <laughs> although I got a guy that owns a couple of restaurants one's called Cinema which I heard is amazing yeah, down great there place. great place yeah so there you go Jen see and by the way Jennifer Q Taylor who owns Cinema guess who he worked under. My bestest friend in the whole wide world who passed away, the, oh, the young Carrie Simon. Yep. Q ran Simons. And then he moved to Nashville, opened cinema, and I think like 8th Street Coffee or something. But he's done a great job. Great job. Hey, to send Rob, Matt in. Rob, if you're going to hang out, but I do have to mention, I know we're here to talk maybe about a cookbook or grilling or something like that. You guys are talking about fragrance. So my other business is actually in the south of France. So we own a uh, fragrance company based in Austin, Texas. And our most famous fragrance, uh, you got to stop wearing Creed. You got to start wearing Moonshine Cologne. It's been the most popular men's fragrance for 10 plus years. We sell it at Stag in Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, Texas, uh, kind of all over the country. Jennifer, you've been throwing out a lot of, say, je pense que tu pas français, no? You know what? I have to tell you, I am so excited that you're here. We're going to round out this conversation. And I actually wear men's cologne, so I can't wait awesome. to put the dab of moonshine behind me as well. That sounds amazing. But, you know, it's really not surprising because 85% of what we experience as flavor when we talk about either a spirit or a food comes from our sense of smell. All of sure. us in this business have a developed sense of uh, aroma. It's not only one of the most uh, primal things that triggers those sections of our brain that connect emotion and food and experience. But it's also something that connects us as human beings and it gives us so much pleasure. And the more pleasure we have, the more satisfaction we have from the things we eat and drink. And so it's no surprise to me that you're telling me that you're in the aroma business on multiple fronts. Yeah. I mean, uh, out of all the five senses, our strongest, sense of uh of recall is the olfactory sense you know and I, I can always think of um just memories of my youth you know my grandmother frying chicken and cast iron uh playing baseball growing up and the smell of fresh cut grass uh you were talking about kentucky women i, I won't go there for you but uh <laughs> regardless you know i think it is one of those things that kind of leaves that stamp in place in time and you know writing cookbooks and writing recipes is really a um an homage to a process, right? Like you're creating um, the, the heart note. Like you're, you've got a base with a with your your core ingredients. You've got the middle notes. You got your top notes with like finishing sauces, and you, you still have that same mantra when it comes to a fragrance. So for me, um, as a cookbook author and and also being involved in the world of perfumery, they're they're very common themes. You're just using uh, different senses to to really appreciate those, but they're also very much Connery and I have a young, um, uh, a five-year-old. She just turned five uh, last week, and she's been turned on to the whole um, COVID happy hour that my wife and I have been taking advantage of. <laughs> Around four o'clock or five o'clock, uh, we get a nice glass of rosé. And one day she told me to pick up tortilla chips at the grocery store, 
Uh, but being a southerner, I didn't see any tortilla chips. I bought some pork rinds, um, and oh, my nice. kids started calling them puffy chips. Not pork <laughs> nice. And I'll never forget. My daughter said they 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 taste like gasoline. And really, what she was doing is taking that like the taste of a pork rind is like the smell of diesel gas. And I was like, well, goodness, you know, you're going to be a nose one day. So it's a uh, it's unique to see it from the perspective of a child. That's awesome. Hey, Rob was telling us about his bourbon whiskey and we were sniffing it together. And the sniff of that was so distinctively different. And what you just did, uh, Matt, was you described one of my favorite food terms, which is a flavor cord. Flavor cords are those things that are really just so self-evident that when you start to pay attention in the moment that you're experiencing it, breaking it down to the component parts, you just explained on one on one hand what those parts are. I'm going to turn now to Rob, my, my scientist. Rob, describe flavor chords as we're experience them, experiencing them because they really do deliver an understanding of multiple things happening at the same time when we're taking it in through the aroma. Yeah, the so like with whiskey especially, olfaction is more important than what you get through taste and, and the retronasal when you have the whiskey in your mouth and the aromas are going back up into your into your nose. That really creates that that impression. And well, you know, with whiskey there are layers to it for sure. And then you can train and you can begin to, to tease those flavors apart just the way you can with food and with wine and anything else. But I like to always start when, when I'm tasting a whiskey. I don't try to do that. I let just I take a sip and I enjoy it and let the experience and let the flavor that the overall flavor of that whiskey just make its mark. And and then from there, if I want to dive into it more and try to tease apart the individual components that are creating that overall flavor impression, you know, I will. But there's a lot of times where I, I don't want to do that. You know, where I'm, where I'm, I'm just trying to enjoy the whiskey. Now, what like today when we're with our sensory panel and the whole goal there is to is to do just that to kind of tease apart the whiskey into its individual components. You know, the cinnamon, the oak, the vanilla, caramel, the fruits, the tropical fruit, dark fruit, citrus fruit, um, and you can find a lot of those things in, in whiskeys. Uh, but you also just have that overall impression. That I think that's the most fun part about it, right? You know, and and then the way you connect that to your memories and experiences, sharing with friends and family. Matt, if you haven't had a chance to try um, the, the TX uh, bourbon whiskey that uh, Rob and his team make, yeah. he's done one of the most difficult things there is to do. Take something that we know and love, which is bourbon whiskey. Sure. And, you know, most places around the world that produce bourbon whiskey actually come from somewhere near where you all are from. But the truth is people are producing bourbon, quote unquote, whiskeys all over. There's problems with labeling. We won't get into that. <laughs> but one of the things that's very difficult to do is to develop the terroir or the identifying signature elements of that whiskey so that you could really differentiate in a tasting that that's not a Tennessee whiskey. That's not a Kentucky whiskey. That's not an Irish whiskey. Where is that from? Mm. And in creating an entirely new category of whiskey that are the Texas whiskeys, I think, Rob, you've done an extraordinary job. 
this is clearly, I'm going to say this in the nicest way possible. This is not like anything else. No, and a lot of our Texas whiskeys have a distinctness to them. And I mean, with us, with TX bourbon specifically, one of the really cool parts about it is just how much we tried to tap into local ingredients. And I know it's like a buzzword, but we are the only distillery to utilize a wild strain of Texas yeast. So that was my first job with the company was to uh, go on a wild yeast hunt and isolate <laughs> a, a wild Texas yeast strain. And actually, it was part of like my interview process. Uh, they asked me, "Can I do that?" Because a lot of the, the a lot of the guys in Kentucky have proprietary strains that were isolated decades ago and. I didn't know, but I wanted the job, so I told the two uh, original proprietors. I told them, "Sure, I can do that for you," and uh, hire me. And um, but that's why, yeah, it was one of the first things I did was go on a wild yeast hunt, and we ended up with a, a yeast strain that came from a pecan nut on a ranch about an hour southwest of our distillery. Oh, interesting. And a lot of those distinct cinnamon and dark fruit flavors you get in the bourbon are from the wild yeast, and we know because we've made other. We've done batches with commercial whiskey yeast for comparison, and, and those distinct notes aren't there. Um, and then we also have one farmer that supplies us all of our grain. Um, John Sawyer is about an hour south of us, and he, since 2015, has supplied us all of our yellow dent corn, all of our soft red winter wheat. And then he really pioneered the growing of rye and barley in Texas, and over the past couple of years became our sole supplier of both rye and barley. Wow, that is so cool. So just hey, Rob. Things come together, and it's it's a distinct product. You know, you, you layer yeah. flavor. The grain is the base, and then the yeast will introduce, you know, from grain you can get a lot of cereal notes, yeah, but you can get some nice fruit notes as well. The yeast is going to make a ton of esters that are real fruity, floral notes, um, and then maturation layers on the vanilla and caramel and, and all those. Have nice you heard of that? Nuts. Hey, Rob, have you heard, have you heard of that red corn? That red corn, it's like a red corn. Yeah, Bloody Butcher, Jimmy Red. Yeah. Um, yeah Jimmy Red, yeah. Yeah. The, that's, an, that's another cool thing that's going on is, I guess, you could look at basically distillers, especially the craft distillers, the new guys, are starting to look at grains the same way that winemakers look at grapes. And yeah. instead of just saying, let me go buy yellow dent corn off the commodity market, I'm not saying it's bad corn or that it doesn't make good whiskey. It can. It does make great whiskey. But are we missing something when you look at how many varieties of our heirloom grains have existed in the past? And the flavors are very, you know, there's a ton of diversity of flavor in our heirloom grains that just aren't present in our modern varieties. And there's just, I think there's a huge, and that's why this discover a lot of that. And that's why this whiskey doesn't taste like anything any of our forefathers would have ever sipped. And if they had a sip of this, they would have just loved it and it would have developed its own tradition, its own mm -hmm. legend. Yeah. Uh, Rob, are you going to be working on any rye whiskeys? We, uh, we've got a rye whiskey um, that we've been working on for years. Um, the first release will come out here in a, in a few months. Um, and then uh, eventually we'll have a... Um, you know, it'll be a, a, a permanent product that we have in the market. Um, you, you know what would be fun to see on a bottle one day, Jennifer? What? Heir, heirloom grains. No one's written it. It's not on any bottle, right? How cool 
You know what? I Rob believe uh, Miss Troy Ball at uh, Troy and Sons Whiskey in Carolina, makers of the Carolina Blonde Whiskey, might actually have that word on there. But I could, you could correct me if I'm if I'm mistaken. Before we let everybody uh, go on to the next topic, the one thing Wait. I want to talk about this bourbon is it, I was on a topic. It's screaming. It is absolutely screaming for grilling. If it's possible for for a food category to be as broad as grilled food to be conjured up and and really uh, craved with something that's as simple as a whiskey sip. And again, Dale DeGroff, the king of cocktails, said that cocktails are 15 perfect sips meant to stimulate the appetite. This is a whiskey, a cocktail unto itself, stimulating the appetite, igniting the craving for grilling. And with that, we're going to turn to Matt Moore. Well, I'd like, can I like to say something? Can I alliterate a little bit? I mean, that's it. You're like the alliteration queen. So we're, we're talking about the heirlooms. And, and Matt, I want to know, how long did it take you to really, really find all the best busts of the South? I mean, this is amazing, right? I want to know what kind of research you did. Were there heirloom butts? What's going on, right? Perfection. I don't know what's going on, Jennifer, but I saw this and I said, what kind of show are you running here, Jen? Well, I'm what kind tell of show? You, we actually went to Matt's book and we did a, a rib recipe that Look at this. Uh, yes, from Serial Griller. And and uh and the cereal griller recipe you'll see pictures of in our next segment with Rob Arnold because we did a rib recipe out of his book. Look at this, the Southern Gentleman's Kitchen. I mean, look at the first of all, that's what he calls himself. <laughs> I don't know. Is this a Southern gentleman? Is this what yeah. a Southern gentleman? Well, I, it, it started. That was that was obviously the first book was um, uh, "Have a River for Dinner," which I published in I think 2010, and uh, that was before I met my wife, and and led to me uh, obviously becoming a Southern gentleman uh, of many ways. And we wrote "Southern Gentleman's Kitchen," and then I say it kind of all went to heck because we did the South's best butts, and now we're doing cereal griller and uh there's other ideas that are out there that's but yeah, I, I mean dude if you were if you were opening for Vassar 15 years ago that's when they there were that was 20 30,000 those were big stadiums he was doing 30 15 years ago yeah these were uh, these weren't honky tonks well no, they were not. i wasn't on that tour but we had a good time <laughs> all right let's talk about grilling are we should we go say goodbye to rob or does rob want to stick around rob you want to stick around yeah sure what would he say no, Jennifer? <laughs> he has Michael Pollitt's time. He's Rob, you're getting Michael Pollitt's time. Nobody gets Michael Pollitt's time, bro. Yeah, so take it. Right? Take it. Yeah. All right. We're gonna maybe Rob and I'll go backstage and drink some whiskey while you and Matt talk. What do you think of that, Jen? No, we we, we I want Rob to get to know Matt. I mean, there's a reason. We curate these shows like dinner parties. Mm, we yeah, our guests so carefully, and we blend mm -hmm. our personalities and and philosophies such that we know that we're introducing people who could become friends for life. Wow! And I want to say that every time an hour after the show, Jennifer always calls me and says one of her girlfriends called her up and said that I'm a misogynistic pig, and how dare you be on a show with him? He makes you look bad. Get rid of that guy. He's horrible. On and on and on. I'm going to admit that, Jen, right now. I don't want to hear that today. Okay. I'm I'm not, never, but it's okay. We were watching Moana this morning, and Maui was doing his song about like how he's the greatest. And, la, 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 la. and I said to my wife, I love that song. She said, of course you do. He's a narcissist. 
So that's what I live with, you guys. Okay, good. Can, I, can I talk about serial grillers? Because the idea that we get to talk to a gentleman who has in the shot his <laughs> incredible cooking modality that he is willing to share with us tips on how you can grill, even if you don't have a sprawling southern estate, a back 40. If all you have is room for a hibachi, he's got things that he knows how to coax out of not only the space, but the but the small amount of flame that we need to do the grilling that we need to do to really make our food incredible. Matt, help us. <laughs> Jennifer, you are a true wordsmith. Thank you. Grilling is an art. Like whiskey making, it is a blend of art and science. Take us through with the summer that lies ahead, where we may be cooking and grilling for ourselves or for many, whether we have open houses or more quarantine. You've got tips on how to grill during quarantine that we want to start off with and hope that by the end of the summer season, we can do lots more. Yeah, I mean... Cereal grill is uh, a follow-up to uh, the South's Best Butts, which was this grand homage to Southern barbecue and traveling all throughout the barbecue belt and meeting pitmasters and getting their stories. And, um, you know, one of the unique things as uh, being born and raised in the South is there's a, there's a drastic difference between what is barbecue and what is grilling. And I still don't think that's appreciated across the country. So they're, they're very disparate subjects. Um, you know, with barbecue, there's a lot of secrecy. There's a lot of, um, you know, uniqueness. There's a lot of regionality. So, you know, North Carolina style barbecue, uh, depending on if you're in Eastern or Western North Carolina, uh, is going to vary quite differently from Oklahoma and Texas and everywhere in between. So there's a lot of independence that I think is, um, is really well fostered. And uh, what we wanted to do with Cereal Griller is actually kind of go on that same road trip. Uh, my photographer, Andrea Behrens, who's based here in Nashville, she's uh, really a, a rock, an indie rock kind of style photographer that I think is uh, the absolute best in the world that kind of shoots these kind of Terry Richardson style documentarian uh, shots of us traveling on the road and, and meeting different grill masters. And for me, uh, with Cyril Griller, we wanted to make sure that we captured everything good that happens above 300 degrees. Essentially, oh, basically, yeah, every recipe really creates um, the Maillard reaction, which is, um, you know, just the, the, the chemical science of what occurs. And I know Rob could probably speak to this because it's also involved in like brewing and, and those types of things of, you know, high heat temperatures, what, what happens with the, the natural enzymes and sugars, so on and so forth. But I, I will share this. Um, the coolest thing about cereal griller is we traveled a lot outside the South and everywhere in between. And one of the great things that we found is it doesn't matter, um, doesn't matter your race, your gender, your religion, who you are, where you come from. Uh, cultures and cuisines essentially all share one common act. And that fact that we can all make our food better over a grill. And Cooking so on I fire. Really, that? Cooking on fire. Yeah. And I, I wanted to kind of um, represent, you know, America has always been a melting pot. And, uh, we're really unique to live in a culture where everybody has really come from somewhere else, but we hold pretty hard and fast to our food traditions. Uh, my family is of Lebanese descent. Uh, my grandfather was a oh, butcher. Yeah. And, you know, we, we always remember, as I mentioned, growing up in the South, my grandmother would fry chicken and cast iron and we were eating. Mm. 
we were eating tabbouleh and, and kibbe naya before it became cool. But I just remember him coming home with cuts that now are called like flat iron um, and other different terms that back in the day, they didn't even have a name, but he knew how to butcher them. And we cook them over charcoal. And, uh, to and me, the tomb, like, did you use the tomb, the garlic oh, sauce? With double the garlic, of course. Oh. Yeah. So that is, let me tell you, America, I'm just going to say this, Matt. America doesn't know what they're missing, right? Like this yeah. is the greatest. I'm going to use, I use it as a condiment. Like I go to a Lebanese restaurant and I just get a big, like literally a quart of it. And I'm like, I need, they're like, what do you need so much for uh, everything? Yeah. This is the, it is the, and then, and then there's a fantastic gyro place. I know Cairo, Cairo, however you pronounce it, in, uh, Laguna, <laughs> in, in Laguna Beach, California. And we go there and they slather it on, then they put the gyro on, right? And nobody yeah, knows man. why their gyros are so delicious. Boom. It's un, but so his, his background, Jennifer, lends oh, yeah. itself to, to amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Let's just go we on a tangent and take us off track. There's a place called Falafel City in downtown Calgary in Alberta, Canada, of all places. And they do yep. something you haven't seen done anywhere else in the world. They take an enormous round flatbread and they build the gyro with a gobs of the garlic and the Lebanese pickles, the purple pickles. Sure. Yeah. And then and then they roll the whole thing up in this one. It's like they because it's cold, they wrap it up in a comforter and then they put the whole thing in a press. Yes. 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 Oh, I'm telling you, these That's guys. That's what they do in Laguna Beach. Same thing. They put it in a press. It's yeah. amazing. But it I breaks up that garlic right in. Oh, you were going back to Matt? I'm sorry. I was talking about this about <laughs> me right now. Well, I thought we were here to talk about Lebanese food. We are. I'm ready, dude. I'm coming to Nashville if you're cooking Lebanese food. I, I am all the time. That's 100%, 100% favorite, 100%. You know, I almost wish that he had spelt uh, cereal grillers with S-E-A-R, eel, because the great thing about grilling and the way to really think about it, Matt, you did us a big favor in explaining this, is you want to be so high heat you can get searing happening, which gives an entirely different process, which you're giving us the proper name for. Yeah, I mean, we spend a lot of time in the book talking about not only the Maillard reaction, but... Uh, a couple interesting stats that I came across. Uh, believe it or not, I do do some research in addition to flying around the country and eating great food. But um, 75% of Americans own a grill, which I think is just a fantastic stat. Think about that. Like three quarters of all Americans. So what are we at? Like 300 million people yeah. in the United States own a grill. And one of the other unique sides of that is that 62, uh, if you talk to my friend Meathead out of Chicago, he's going to tell you 64 He's probably right on it. I just like to say 62. I like to make him right as much as possible. Um, own a gas grill, right? And um, one of the things that I wanted to do in Cereal Griller is, is not be um, too much of a snob when it comes to, to the idea of grilling. Uh, I'm not formally trained uh, other than my mother kind of uh, teaching me my way around the kitchen in the same way my daughter, excuse me, my father taught me how to throw a circle change up and make a tackle when it came to playing linebacker in football. My mom taught me how to do my dishes, keep a clean kitchen, have a nice mise en place, and make the best fried chicken in the world. Uh, at the same time, you know, I think when you're talking about grilling setups, a lot of people think about gas grilling right. because it creates this level of convenience. But I can distinguish- And control. People argue convenience and control. Yeah, of course, control as well, because you're able to, just like on a stovetop, you know, be able to dictate a temperature if you want to go from low to high, it's it's a it's a quick change. 
So we spend a lot of time in the book talking about not only the Maillard reaction of creating this year, but really what is your grilling goal? And for me as a food writer, I've always wanted to try to invite as many people to the party as possible. It's kind of like being uh, raised Catholic on a Sunday. Uh, back in our family, we would have, like I said, the kibbe naya, the grape leaves, the fried chicken, and all these Lebanese dishes. You would have the pastor. You would have friends, strangers, neighbors, everybody in between. And when I write recipes, I want to make sure that if you have a gas grill, if you have a charcoal grill, if you have a pellet grill, if you've got a cast iron egg that weighs 750 pounds, I want to make it super accessible to everybody because, you know, we've seen it through COVID. Um, the more people that we can invite to our family table and the more people that we can expose to the great restaurateurs and chefs that we travel in this book, cooking and sharing great food is what makes us all better. And uh, I think that's really the mission of everything that I do with every every recipe and every book that I put out. You know, Michael's going to jump on this and tease me, but one of my all-time favorite words in our business, guys, is conviviality. Sure. Whiskey is a social lubricant that really cultivates and fosters conviviality. So is I mean, great honestly, food. did you need to say lubricant? I was good with conviviality. <laughs> and then you throw lubricant in there. <laughs> go ahead. Keep going. Keep going. Keep it going. <laughs> Back on track. Back on track. There's the conviviality. Go ahead. I want to talk about the fact that 100% of Americans have access to grilling because grilling is as simple as striking a match in a controlled environment. Some of the greatest meals that I've enjoyed in my career and my lifetime have come from the most improbable places, including hanging out with a group of chefs after hours, after one of those big events that we all do, where you are at a table and you've got a thousand or 2000 guests and you give them little samples of something in a tiny cup and they've blown away because it's really delicious. And you get done because you spent two days getting ready and you spent a whole day serving and breaking down and cleaning up. And when you get back together, back at the hotel or back wherever you're staying, and you're all a little bit hungry because you haven't had time to eat. No. You, what do you want? And you look around and what have you got? And you get everything out of your fridges and you look and you go, oh, I've got a couple of steaks. And the next thing you know, you're taking found cinder blocks, any kind of wood you can find. And creating some kind of a structure with any kind of found thing and, and, and finding a way to build a fire, control it safely, and tie these pieces of meat off of, a, off of a discarded piece of metal racking that allows you to let the meat cook in the fire and the fire be built in and stoked by the drips off those pieces. I was in... I was in Mexico last year in Sonora in a beautiful park called, uh, well, I'll get to it. I'm digressing. But Chef Chris Bianca, who's a pizza master of the wood and fired pizza experience, built a fire and he cooked all kinds of meat at Parque La Ruena on these, on these devices. Let's talk about the fact that everyone can have a grill and grilling experience, even if they don't have a $200,000, $500,000 grilling apparatus. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like you said, a, a gas grill is what 62% of Americans have. Charcoal, as we evolve into that, you know, there's more expensive grill setups. But, you know, honestly, um, there are days, even where I'm here in Nashville, and it might be raining or something along those lines, 
And for the folks that are like in, in New York, you know, one of my best friends is a very successful restaurateur in New York. I don't think he's ever cooked a meal in his entire life. I sent him a cast iron skillet uh, as we went into the, the COVID period. He's a big steak eater. And I said, Brian, just put this thing on your stovetop. You know, let it come to a temperature. He likes a big, thick cut ribeye. So I said, just, you know, open up the, the windows or, or start your little fan if you have one. Um, and and just, just grill that over cast iron. Get a really nice sear. Let that mired reaction occur. You know, brown it all on all sides. And because you wanted a, like a, a, a rare to a medium rare, finish it off in a hot oven. And he called me and he said, he said, man, it tastes like summer. And yeah. I thought that was such a cool thing. He cooked it inside in his Manhattan apartment, if you will, um, using cast iron. He said, I don't know how to clean this pan now. <laughs> that was the second part of advice. But yeah, I think it doesn't matter if you're using gas, charcoal, you know, we've got uh, infrared technology, we have cast iron, like there is something to that art of, of high heat, uh, getting that sear, getting that smoke and that char that really is just super primal that kind of brings all of us together. And in the olfactory sense, you know, the taste like summer was that smoke and the char and the flavor and the bite. And, uh, you know, it was just a good escape for him in that moment where so many folks are are struggling right now. Matt, you, you know, you Matt, Matt, can we get, I'm sorry. Can I go? Can I go? Sure, yeah. go ahead. Okay, I know. I'm just don't talk about Kentucky, though. No, I don't. I'll talk to you about that later. Um, I have. I just got delivered to me last two weeks ago a Brava. Have you, are you familiar with these Brava machines? Brava, B R A V A, and it literally is like infrared light, right? And I put the steak in there, and I'm like. It just doesn't matter how you season it, whatever, right? But it sears the bottom. It sears, the, like yes. it tells you guys. And yes. honestly, it's no mess, very easy. But you can also cook like asparagus, Jennifer. Sure. With the, with the vegetable. And you could do, you, you could put the steaks on and then you go a little deeper and you put the asparagus on, you tell it. Yeah, it cooks everything at once. You pull it out, you've got this amazing steak. And so it, it can be done, right? And it's like, I know what you're talking about with these snobs, like, I've got buddies that'll spend three days, you know, with the, I need the right bark on my brisket. You know what I mean? With the, and I'm like, dude, I just got like a well-built, whatever, I think it's called well-built, a well-built smoker and it's fine. No, I don't need to put it, wrap it in towels and stick it in a cooler. And, you know, right? Yeah. And it all tastes great. It's like, what is this? This is amazing. Well, I think like, um, like you said, uh, it doesn't matter the expense of your equipment, right? It's just the, um, I'll never forget, there's a pit master out of, um, St. Louis that runs, um, goodness gracious, Pappies, and I, I'm, I'm dropping his name because that was two books ago, but uh, he told me the best language I've ever he heard. He said, in barbecue, all that matters, you can have a $3,000 egg that weighs 750 pounds, or you can have a $40 uh, grill that you buy at a supermarket, but time and temperature yeah. will equal results. So as long as you can control the time over temperature, and grilling, obviously, we're looking at a shorter time with a hotter temperature. And with barbecue, we're looking at a much longer time with a lower temperature. But if you can control those, you're going to get the same result. So the person that tells you that they spent $5,000 on a piece of equipment that cooks a brisket, uh, like you said, you could wrap it in towels, do whatever you want. As long as you're controlling the time and the temperature, you're going to get a great result. And uh, I think that's a lot of fun. And that's what creates that whole like um, romance of cooking. You know, I love dishes that I can pull off on the cheapest things possible. <laughs> you know, the same. but that's the magic. 
Yeah. Well, we knew that, Rob. Rob, we knew you were going to agree with that. We knew that you're from Texas. <laughs> no, but like we have a lot of overlap with, with the malting process, especially when a grain, like a raw cereal grain, is malted. It, it's the the temperature and the time that it's applied to that high heat during the killing phase is where you get all these different range of malts, like crystal malt, Munich malt, and it's it's due to the Maillard reaction, caramelizations, a lot of the same things you're talking about when, when you grill. Even when we're mashing grain, um, certain certain compounds that come from from some of those downstream Maillard reaction products are, are super important in the whiskey. So, 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 guys, I've got both of you here. Is that why whiskey and a great grilled steak with a sear and a crust and the fat crisp up goes so perfectly well together? Uh, I'll just take the lead. There's one simple statement in, in cooking, and that is brown food is good food, right? So, you know, in grilling and in, you know, even roasting or broiling, the idea is that you're trying to create that reaction and you want every opportunity versus a steaming or a poaching or something along those lines. And, you know, as, as I said earlier, like one of my, my first things of investigating that was like the malt or the the roasting of hops or something along those lines. Rob, you'd be able to speak much more on a beverage standpoint, but like, you know, we love toast uh, because you get that reaction that occurs and, and brown food is good food. That's about as far as my science goes. <laughs> <laughs> brown food is good food. Get out of here. That's why we like bacon. But we crave all those flavors, right? I mean, it, it's it, back a long time ago, it signaled to us that there were sugars and amino acids present sure. in that food or beverage. I mean, that, you know, you're, you're hardwired to like those. Um, yeah. I think some of them are, you know, I think in other animals, those, a lot of the Maillard reaction compounds are actually kind of toxic, but humans have developed an ability to handle it. You know, it's almost like, like cooking food is something that it's just so tied to, to who we are. Right. Um, Rob, and, yeah. and like, Rob, I want to bring up the fact that the greatest whiskeys in the world have one thing in common, which is a barrel that has a char mm -hmm. that's going to give oh, it yeah. some color. I mean, I don't want to say that every whisk, every great whiskey, especially Texas whiskeys are grilled whiskeys, but there is a relationship between grilling and great whiskeys. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, we almost all of us around the world will we work with white oak um, here in the U.S. Usually, it's American white oak, but you the the, the charring process, which is the barrel literally catches on fire, and, and by law, to make bourbon, you have to use a new charred oak barrel, and, and because we have to use the barrel only once, that means that most of our used bourbon barrels go overseas to Scotland, Ireland, and uh, to make their whiskeys to Canada to make Canadian whiskeys. And, so the point is, and charred barrels just they're they're they are the basis of all of our maturation um yeah. whether it's a new chart or a used chart and uh that that high heat you know the barrel catching on fire for 20 to 45 seconds you know how long the barrel's on fire determines the degree of char which determines the flavors you get in the whiskey right um it's not my art of caramelization it's high high heat but it, it creates it turns things like lignin and wood which obviously has no taste into, into vanilla flavors and and they'll you know you get these you just get all the delicious you know, the caramelization the high heat breaks down that wood into 
And so a lot of the same flavors probably you get that come off, uh, you know, I don't know, you might, it's like during grilling, the flavors that come from the wood actually, will they yeah. bump up into the food? I mean, that's yeah, sure sure. the same stuff. I had my own mired reaction. I was plugging in my laptop there, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rob, I want to just point something out. You know, when you're making that last point, uh, w one of the things that's incredibly important about the bourbon versus the blended whiskey is that you're getting uh, you're getting this sense with the bourbon of a real wood character, mm -hmm. and and that was that was a chosen element the way the artist chooses the color. It's chosen the way the the, the chef brings up and accentuates the flavor. The blending that you do, the distillation that you do, all of that is very, very familiar when we talk about any of these capital F fine arts. Historically, we hadn't considered the culinary arts realm and the hospitality arts realm, distilling, cooking, uh, among these arts, but they're there. Will you, each of you talk a little bit about your philosophy of the art of what you do? Rob, you're up first. <laughs> like I said earlier, I mean, to me, science is true, or uh, whiskey making is truly a blend of science and art. It's, you know, you can't have one or the other, in my opinion, you have to have them both. You know, I, in my, when I was first starting out, I tried, and I came from a, you know, from a lab, from a science lab, I, I tried to take a very scientific approach to it. And, and, and I missed the forest for the trees. And you just, you have to bring the artistic, the creative side, what you want the whiskey to be. You have to, you know, even if you can't, even if science doesn't explain everything, use it to your, you know, to your advantage, but you use it to identify problems, but don't try to use it to create good whiskey. Science doesn't create good whiskey. The, the creative artistic side of this process makes good whiskey. Science allows you to avoid or identify problems and solve them, but you know, you, you can't go at it with a fully scientific approach or you will fail. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. It's because it is so much, uh, you know, the same way a chef wouldn't approach, you know, their food that way. I mean, you can't use science to aid the process and to identify, you know, new ways of doing something, new flavors. But it can't be, you know, it can't be your guiding, your guiding principle. To, you've got to have that a creative artistic approach to really do that. Well, so you know, Jennifer, Jennifer, can I say something, Jennifer? What? I'm sorry. Her friends always tell me that Jennifer never lets you talk enough, Michael. <laughs> so today I'm going, I think that what is neat, can I say the word neat, Jen, or does that make me look like a boomer? I think, I think that Rob in his background, right, the science background that he has is very helpful because he is in a field right now where he doesn't want to use that science. He wants to be natural, organic, right, right, how they're doing it, creativity, where other guys are coming in just learning about the science of it, which could make it, you know, malt faster or whatever they do. It'll move things quicker. And, and he's like, that's not going to work, bro. And he already knows all that because that's what his education is in. It's pretty amazing, right? Yeah. It's almost like you, Jennifer, right? Like a, like a woman, a beauty like you. When you walk down the street, people are like, that is it a sophisticated woman. Don't you agree, Matthew? I, I agree completely. Yeah. I think you, you hit it on the head. Like, you know, for me, writing recipes, the idea is that we were going to write something that's going to make people successful and 
create this meal that is sort of scientific. Like if we write the best recipe, we are going to produce a result. And, and that's why we spend so much time, energy uh, to make sure that everything is super tested and they're almost foolproof. But, you know, I, I can get recipes from my grandmother that are still written in Arabic or my mother and, and I can follow them to the T and they taste good. Sometimes yeah. they're great, but they're not exceptional. Yeah. And, and one day I just said, you know, it's just like, it's not the same love. Right. And, yeah. and you talk about terroir, like that's such a relevant statement because in Texas, if I'm in, in Fort Worth, the wood that I'm using, the way that it's been grown in the soil and the sand and the temperature and the smoker and the seasoning is going to be vastly different than something that may transpire in Virginia. But that's really the beauty of foods. And I think we can all share this commonality of um, cooking great food, creating these really fantastic, realistic expectations, but there still is joy and art to the journey. And that's kind of the whole mantra of, of my food writing and the travels. It is worth traveling to go taste it at the destination, and then you can pick it up and, and replicate that at home and get that same payoff, which I think is uh, super fantastic. The last yeah. word, I've mean, been wordsmithing all day, but the last word I want each of you to comment on is intention. I hear you talking about the intention of the result that you want to have, that you give to your family. You want to cook with love for them. Yeah, Let's I mean, how intention is important in interpreting a recipe and making a drink. Um, you know, I can tell you, I get often asked, like, what was the best bite you had as you traveled 10,000 miles to write a cookbook? And um, Michael Solomonoff is a good friend of mine at, and at Zahav in Philly. And uh, I think he's created some of the best bites in my life as a James Beard best chef or outstanding chef. But I, I have to give it up to a guy named Cadillac outside of Atlanta. Uh, we flew in and, and and met with him. He had a big old smoker. He's cooking quail. He's cooking all sorts of different dishes. But he was doing a flank and rib, which is really kind of uncommon. Um, and he's a formally trained chef, but he really cooks outside of a nightclub. Uh, Poets, you might actually know those kind of places. I don't know, but uh, I don't it. hang out there. But you you might. So I don't hang out at nightclubs. <laughs> How dare you, Matthew? Nightclub. But he did a, a a really a grilled flank and rib. He grilled a jalapeno. He just cut it in half. He left the seeds and the core in, grilled it over high heat, direct heat, allowed that reaction to occur, dipped it in kosher salt to where it just picked it all up. And he said, eat this fatty rib that I've marinated for you. I've cooked it perfectly. It was just like gelatinous and tender. And he said, now chase it with this jalapeno. And I bit it. And I just remember like right there at that place in time, that bite was just one of those intentional bites that I will never forget. And uh, it's something I'll be chasing for a while. Yeah. And intention in whiskey, you know, it, because our whiskey's aged for years, right? I mean, the, the, our bourbon is at least four years old. The blend has whiskeys that vary from four to six years old. Um, I mean, none, no one knows exactly what it's going to taste like after the barrel maturation process. So the, the best, a whiskey distiller can do is is use science and experience to kind of decide how to put together a recipe, put together the grain bill, what percentage of corn, wheat, rye, barley, malt, all that. What kind of yeast do you want to use? You know, you can decide if you want a yeast that produces fruity flavors or floral flavors or spicy flavors. What kind of barrel do you want to use? How you know different char? Like I said, will char three will produce different flavors than a char four? Maybe you toast the barrel first and then char it. All these things 
you know, you, you're, it's just about trying to put it together. And, but in the end, it's, it goes through so many transformations. It is really like a journey for the distiller too. I mean, we do not know what it's going to taste like when it's all said and done, which like when I talk about the creative artistic approach to it, I think what I really am getting at with whiskey making is that you just can never assume that you've got it figured out. You know, you've got to always trial new grains, new yeast, new barrel types, because you'll discover things that you never would have expected along the way. And that's, that's how you make great whiskey is you just, you never assume you've got the recipe done. You constantly are evolving and deciding what can I do to try to tap into new flavors, you know? You guys, thank you so much. I only wish we were in the same place at the same time and that that fire grill was roaring right now and we were about to pull some kind of big, ribby, beefy, salty, gorgeous thing off so that we could toast together and nibble together and keep this party going. I can't thank each of you enough for setting our summer on a trajectory of delicious. Hey, thank you guys. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, you're welcome to my house in Nashville anytime. I'm, don't you, I'm coming, Matt. I'm coming to your bring house. Bring Phil. Bring Phil. He can sing. I'm going to bring. I'm going to bring Phil, and I'm going to bring my best friend. Just moved out to Leapers Fork, Vince Neal, and uh, he's not going to be having his concerts right now. Like this Motley Crue is going to, I guess, put, be postponed or whatever for a couple of months, obviously. So. I will be down there and I'm going to be like, Vince, we're going to go get some good grilled food and you're going to enjoy it. So, so I got to tell you real quick, when yeah. we were doing the, uh, the title for cereal griller, I was getting a little bit of pushback and uh, they were like, it's, it's too abrasive. So I, I pitched them the idea of me sitting in one of those 1980s um, limos that has the, uh, the hot tub in the back. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we could go down the sunset strip and we would just float Weber grills and we would just call it grills, yeah. grills, grills. You know, I mean, why not? Dude, <laughs> I have so much to tell you. That's amazing. We're gonna be, we're gonna do this. We're gonna do it. Why don't you and Vince do a cookbook and call it grills, grills, grills? Hey, I'm all in. I'm all in. Oh my god, it's amazing. See it's what happens, next Rob. Time we can top it, <laughs> dude. Oh my god, that's a that is. A, he's gonna lose his mind. I'm gonna call him in a little while. He's gonna lose his mind over that. That's the greatest thing ever. That's great. <laughs> All right, cheers. Jennifer, you would, hey, Jennifer us, wouldn't understand. Give us a few months to, you know, get in that, you know, that that shape for us to take that photo. So, <laughs> oh, it's okay. We'll Photoshop. We'll Photoshop. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Let's wrap up by saying, Rob Arnold, I want to thank you for bringing and introducing us to the TX Texas whiskey. Not only are you introducing a new product, but you've created an entirely new category. One of the rarest, hardest things to do in the world of spirits. You've done it brilliantly well. And it's partially because your intention was to make something really delicious. You've succeeded and then some. I can't Cheers. wait to do Thank part. You. We're going to do part two of this with the Texas whiskey legend, Linda West Eckhart, pairing food with each of these spirits. Boring. And Chef Matt Moore, I love your books. Thank you so much for coming and being with us. You're welcome anytime. And when you and Michael are getting in trouble, I'll stay behind so that I can come and make bail, okay? <laughs> we'll leave a, we'll leave behind a great trail of fantastic food, okay? We'll always have 15000 in our pocket to make the bail. Don't you worry about it, Jennifer. <laughs> and listen, Matt, I got to tell you, I can't wait to cook some food over an open fire with you. It's the one thing that's missing for most contemporary kitchens. They're far too sanitized. Well, they need 
more fire in the great kitchens in America. Can't agree with you more. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank for you, Matt. Stay in touch, buddy. Stay in Here's touch with us. See you later. Bye-bye. Wow. What do you, you think? You say that every show. Like you're surprised that we pulled some things together that are really going to delight you. I mean, Rob was a little nerdy. Rob was a little nerdy. I'm not I love lie. that. No, I'm just kidding. I like Rob. Rob was cool. Rob, they're all fun. I'm sure all the girls love Rob because he's a scientist. Oh, God. I don't even want to talk about it. Listen. Right? I'm That's what's up. Matt was like, I was a football player and a singer. And Rob's like, I'm a scientist. And the girls are like, ooh, football player, singer, <laughs> scientist. That's what you I, girls I, I are like. I, that's what you girls are like. But, but you see how they all tie together on multiple levels. How yes. this fire in Rob's world, the charred mm -hmm. barrels, that the fire in Matt's world that makes it all become whatever it's Jennifer, be. brilliant. You've done a brilliant show today. A brilliant show. I can't wait for the next one. Listen, I'm going to put a call out right now to the publicists out there. I want to know what's going on in your worlds during quarantine, the way that, that Chef Matt is teaching us about grilling in quarantine. I want to hear from you. I want to find the most unbelievably exciting stories that just are not finding their way to the trade. For whatever reason, we want to give you a shot because we are on a quest to find the most extraordinary food and beverage stories in America. Ooh, that makes me feel like I'm doing something good and fancy. When you get home, hug your kids, count your blessings. We'll see you tomorrow.